Welcome to a special episode of the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. Uh, this is a special episode that we're kind of sandwiching in between seasons. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that we uh, just recently wrapped up season three, which was all about the mystery of Christ. Uh, but right now, there is uh, a movement that is happening all over the country, all over the United States of America, uh, where people are standing up uh, for standing up against uh, police oppression specifically uh, of oppressed minorities in this nation. And so we wanted to make sure that in this moment, we're able to discuss specifically what it means to be a follower of Christ in these times and what role we have to play in calling for justice, uh, for oppression, uh, specifically of the African-American communities. Uh, so to help us with this discussion, I'm very happy to welcome Jean Taylor. Jean, welcome. Uh, Jean's a pastor Hi. from Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we've also got Brad, who's a regular guest of the Impact Nations podcast. Brad's coming to us from Abbotsford, Canada. Welcome, Brad. Thanks. I'm just down to the first name basis now, so I feel That's really right. good about that. <laughs> That's right. Like Brad Jerzak, for those Bono. who really want to know. If you want to find him on the internet, it's Brad Jerzak, and send all of your mean comments to him, not me. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dad, I wonder if you could just take a moment and introduce Gene to us. Yeah, sure. Um, Gene and I met a number of years ago when he was part of a team that uh, joined us in Uganda, Journey of Compassion. Um, and uh, we became friends. Uh, following that, he invited me to come and do an impact weekend uh, at his church, which is in East Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I had a wonderful time. Uh, we've hit up a real good friendship. We discover we both enjoy music, especially jazz music. Um and last week, um, I phoned Gene early in the week. I just wanted to share some stuff that was on my heart. I'd been to a, a Black Lives Matter march, and um, I just really wanted to hear from from my brother. I have, uh, uh, I've got a few, several African American friends, but none of them who are pastoring churches, and I. I asked him if he would be part of this today because I, I wanted to get his perspective. So uh, welcome, Gene. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good being with you, Steve, and to meet your son, Tim, and Brad. Amen. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, I'm honored to be able to um, speak candidly from my heart about an issue that is not just affecting African-Americans, but it is something that has affected the world. Um, as you said, I, I met uh, Steve when I went to Africa with uh, my friend Howard Renker. Uh, he invited several of us to take a trip to Africa with him. And it wasn't on my bucket list because, number one, I don't like flying. I fly because I have to. And I know to get to Africa, I was going to have to fly. Um, I wasn't expecting you know, a 15, 18 hour trip. But you know what? I prayed about it. I believe God was in it. And I made the flight without any problems. Um, and so from there, um, meeting Steve and being a part of Impact Nations, the journey of compassion just kind of revolutionized my ideas, my thoughts. Uh, I revolutionized how I did ministry. Um, being a part of Impact Nations, I was, 
what I've learned there, I was able to kind of adjust and tweak uh, what I have learned culturally uh, about the kingdom. Uh, one thing I was very impressed about with, with Steve was his highlight on the, being in rhythm with the kingdom. And uh, there's an activity that goes on in the kingdom that God wants us to participate in. So I was really blessed to um, learn so much, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. So, so God bless you all. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation quite a bit. Um, for those who are interested, we, Dad's been teaching a series on uh, Facebook Live over the last, I think it's 11 weeks now, uh, on the Beatitudes. And just as it so happens, uh, the last two weeks, he's been teaching on Blessed are the Peacemakers. And so this specific uh, discussion today is actually really going to be framed around some of that teaching that he did. Uh, and actually, Brad, I know you were actually quoted uh, a few times during that teaching as well. So you, uh, we know, have much to say on this issue as well in terms of blessed are the peacemakers. So um, with that in mind, I, I want to talk a little bit about the word peace to begin with. Um, Dad, when you were teaching, you you said, you know, the, the concept of shalom, uh, this Jewish concept of peace, uh, is ultimately a call for communal well-being. Mm. Now, I would put to you guys that the evangelical pursuit of a personal Savior, your, your personal Jesus, uh, and even the American pursuit of happiness, the, that American dream, makes it really difficult for us in North America to wrap our brains around the idea of a communal well-being. Uh, the gospel is too often presented as a solution for individuals rather than as this reconciliation of, of all things, of all creation. Uh, the Constitution is based on individual rights. So are we ever going to be able to understand in this nation how to relentlessly pursue peace for our entire community? And maybe, Jane, I'll, I'll throw that question to you to begin with. Well, I think... Um I know uh, I read some of the information about uh, being a peacemaker, and, and I do believe that uh, to achieve ultimate peace, people are going to really have to take a look at themselves um, because peace is not a noun word. Peace is an action word, and the action uh, isn't something that arbitrarily happens. People are going to have to look at their lives. Uh, accept the differences that are in people, accept uh, the fact, according to a biblical text, that we are all created equal in God's sight. Um, so a lot of the reckoning is going to have to, they're going to have to denounce a lot of the stereotypes that they have. Now, granted, um, this movement, Black Lives Matter, it's not just about um, whites against blacks but there are some times that blacks are racist uh, because in, in terms of what we have encountered over the last 400 plus years. And so we have built up this thing that we also prejudge whites because of the history of abuse and oppression and neglect. So it, it's going to really take every individual to look internally and deal with the stereotypes they have, the biases they have, 
the things that we were taught and uh, have been ingrained in us. We have to take a look at that before we're able to really, yes, peace can be the long-term objective, but there are a lot of things that we have to deal with before we get there. It is not going to happen overnight. Not going to happen overnight, um, but we're not to just uh, throw up our hands and say it can't be done. No, we must, no. cont- as you said, peace is an active, an action word. We must right. be pursuers and, and peacemakers. Um, Brad, maybe could you just real quick touch on the difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker? Because I feel like there's a pretty significant difference between those two. Yeah. Um, the way I'd say it is, you know, blessed are the peacemakers is this, is the word Christ used. And, and what I want to say is that that, that is neither about punishment nor pacification. So um, on the punishment side, some of, some have thought I'm going to bring about peace using violent means. Um, and so for example, we actually have handguns called the peacemaker. We have Hmm. missiles called the peacemaker and that's Jesus word. And so what the, the error there is I'm going to sow some kind of violence that will produce peace, or I'm going to clamp down and maybe I'm going to bring about peace using, using guns and tear gas and, and that this would be a, I'm a peace. I'm a peacekeeper. That's the word used there. But they even will co-opt this word peacemaker for that. And um, in James' epistle, he anticipates that, and he says, "Those who sow in peace will reap a harvest of justice." So if you if you want to do justice, which is to restore shalom to your community, you're going to need to sow something different. Um, um, but then the flip side of that is the status quo can say, well, see, we need to be peacemakers. So why are you protesting? And you need to be quiet and you should be like nice about all of this. And what we don't realize is that even in the Beatitudes, that sowing peace is, it agitates the status quo. So the next Beatitude is blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice. And the word there is righteousness or justice, but we use righteousness to keep it into the personal savior side of things. But, it, but um, when, when, when you have a prophetic cause that pushbacks against oppressive powers, it does agitate the status quo. And so, of course, they want to say, they're there, <laughs> you know, go home. We need to keep it how it is. So I, I think peace, um, being a peacemaker is, 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 is neither of those ditches let's stay down this middle road stay in the flow of uh, uh, and like like gene was saying it does there there is something that has to start with me i i need to look in the mirror and so the beatitude before blessed are the peacemakers are blessed are the pure in heart yeah so when mm-hmm. i'm going to go do mount do try to do justice and be a peacemaker if my heart is full of resentment and malice james mm-hmm. james will say that the wrath of man will not produce the justice of God. So the, any black lives matter. I would say this, anything that matters is complicated, isn't it? And that's why I want to come today. I have more questions than answers really. And I'm so glad Gene's here to respond and help us. 
Well, um, I, don't, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I know that it, it has to begin somewhere. Um, and so what I mean overnight, it, it may be um, two or three or four uh, political, uh, you know, presidents that sit before we really come to the, but, but it has to be on the table and everybody has to talk about it. And, and people, uh, it, it's not a situation where you just point your finger uh, because, you know, they have the old saying, just because you have a, a couple of bad apples, you don't call the whole bushel bad. And every ethnicity and every denomination and every group of people, you, you have those that are, I'll just say, agitators. Um, even when you look at, in, the, in the biblical perspective at the early disciples, they were like agitators. Um, the word on them was that, hey, we've got to stop them because these guys are turning the world upside down. They, they went against the status quo. They went against the norm. And so you have to have a, a, a body of people that will embrace taking a stand. Let's look at uh, having an agenda. You know, it's not, we can't look for a Moses today. We can't look for a Martin Luther King today. It, it's not contingent upon one person that's going to, other than Jesus Christ, that's going to bring the real change. So we have to group together, have meaningful dialogue, and not only talk, but listen. Communication is I talk and I listen. And let's try to come up with um, strategies. And that's the thing that has been broken. Strategies have been broken. That's why we have the failures in the systems that were designed to police, to govern, to, and, and when you think about the word govern, when we talk about the body of Christ, we have to not look at church. We talk about the body of Christ, we're dealing with a, 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 a body of people. The body of people that are the body of Christ are called the ecclesia. The ecclesia were designed to, to replicate or to bring the activity, as Steve Walsh says, the kingdom activity into the earth. We then, what is in the, in the kingdom is govern, governing. The church or the ecclesia have been given the authority, as Jesus said, I've given you the keys, the authority to govern the activity in the earth. So what has happened is there's been a breakdown and a failure in the ecclesia of engaging in what we were supposed to engage in, what Christ left us to do. And we become comfortable in having church, having a good time, amassing our numbers, um, having our conferences and our conventions. And, you know, it, it, we become um, commercialized and we stopped engaging in the true mission that Christ left for the body of believers. And so we, I believe true change has to begin with, with the ecclesia, the body of believers. We're the governing powers. At one time, when you look historically, people did not move. Kings did not move. They did not act throughout the Bible until we had a word from the prophet. What does the prophet say? What is the man of God saying? We had that type of influence. I mean, even when I think about Daniel, when I think about today, the Lord woke me up 
couple of weeks ago, and I read uh, the first five, six chapters of Daniel, and the Lord had me really look at the situation in America and likened it to King Nebuchadnezzar, who had exalted himself, had a great, built a great nation and just pride and arrogance and everything. And, and the word came from the prophet to, to warn him, you know, because remember, he had relied on the prophet for many uh, of the, the kings that relied on the prophets for a word. And he told them when he couldn't have his dream interpreted, the butler, the, the baker, they couldn't, uh, the cupbearer, they couldn't interpret it. They said, there's a man in prison. Name is Daniel. We had dreams. He interpreted dreams. He went, sent for Daniel. Daniel interpreted the dream. And then, amen, because of that interpretation, being so accurate, God gave him a strategy on what to do during the seven good years and the seven lean years. That strategy was successful. So I'm only saying that the people of God, the ecclesia, we need to get come together and seek the face of God, as, as Chronicles said, so that God would give us a strategy on how we could proceed to deal with what's happening in our lands. Can I respond a little bit? Yes. A um, couple of things. One of the things that Brad pointed out in a teaching I heard a week or two ago, and I, I bounced off of that last Tuesday, was uh, being spirit-empowered. Luke 4, 18, 19, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to mm-hmm. claim good news. We, um, we need to be spirit-empowered peacemakers right now are desperately needed. I was so aware of that in the march. I completely agreed with almost everything that was said. Uh, and I was, you couldn't help but feel the, not only the anger, but just the deep sadness and exhaustion. But it is limited. It's, 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 it's limited by the flesh. That doesn't mean it's wrong. I don't mean flesh, mm-hmm. bad spirit, good. What we need is, um, as Brad said, we need to recognize what the spirit is doing and, um, I'm really big on learning to move in the rhythm of, of his kingdom. The, uh, it's interesting in the introduction, we talked about all the different cities in America. It is so worldwide now. I, I watched on TV, probably you did too. I saw Sydney and I saw Paris and I saw London. And I thought, my word, those look like they should be Atlanta or LA. It's, it's absolutely massive. I'm completely convinced that this is a move of the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing I want to say is this. It's too easy for us to kind of get filled with indignation and get through the wave and then things settle down. I'm very scared that things will settle down. That's what I'm praying pretty hard each day, that they don't settle down. You know, we the, the issue is is so tied in with who is my neighbor. And and I talked about that last week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My conviction, whether it's in Canada, Brad, or whether it's my friends in Australia or whether it's across America, my conviction is the church has been behind the walls. As somebody posted last week, he said, we've prayed for years for revival so that those bad people out there would repent and come to church. 
whereas what we need revival is the church needs to be revived. We need to repent and um, uh, repent for silence. To me, that's the biggest thing. Repent for silence. And what I would say is, and I know I tend to be sodalic. I tend to be an activist. It's kind of the way he made me. But I believe that we need to get out and get to where God is moving and join in, as Shane Claiborne wrote years ago. We need to join in, uh, recognizing that we're not just another angry voice or another hurt voice, though we may feel anger and frustration and hurt, but that we can, we do, by the by this mysterious power of the Holy Spirit, we change the atmosphere. And if we can change the atmosphere in a village in, in Africa, then we can change mm-hmm. the atmosphere in Hartford and in Vancouver and in Albuquerque and wherever else we go. We, if we're going to be neighbors, we can't just stay in our houses metaphorically. If we're going to be neighbors, we need to go leave our comfort zone and go where the wounded are, go where God is moving. I, mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about that, Brad, um, but that's how I feel. Okay. <laughs> I know you feel that way. <laughs> um, I have a question for Gene. Um, <clears throat> it, it feels to me like um, there's a lot of wrong ways I can participate in this movement. Uh, like I can get it wrong in so many ways, so much so that it can feel like a double bind to me. Mm. And so that's why I need help. Um, so on the one hand, like I'm even, I, I, I told the guys I, I wasn't sure I should be on this podcast because I'd be taking up some of your bandwidth. And so, so on the one hand, I, I'm hearing um, uh, to beware of that. Mm-hmm. that we, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm hearing speak up because your silence is complicity. So I'm wondering about the ways of speaking up that don't just undermine and co-opt what's going on. So I'd like to participate in helpful ways and wondering if you have some insights for us on that in terms of how the white community can can um, participate and empower what's going on without co-opting it or, or just making it about us and virtue signaling and all of that stuff. I think um, when I look over what's happening is first an individual, and I'm not white, but I will try to give it from that perspective, being a person of color, they have to see that there's an injustice. That regardless of color, there's injustice when people are treated differently. There's injustice when there's such a disparity in the penal system between one race or another. There's an injustice when um, I can be with, for instance, they're on TV, there was a broadcast, a company was their crew. One of the uh, camera guys was white. The guy that was talking was a person of color. The police handcuff and take the person of color to jail and the white person didn't get. So the disparity, I have to see, that's an injustice. And he identified himself, he had his badge on, we're with the press, da da da. 
So we have to first recognize injustice does exist. Now, when I want to deal with justice, I have to deal with justice from a playing field. It's for every person that's breathing, everyone that's alive, regardless of color, injustice. So what, what has happened then, it, years ago, the football player, Colin Kaepernick, took a knee. And he was referring to the injustice, but it got flipped to being desecrating of the flag. And so what happened is because until they're able to see it from our perspective, it will be misconstrued as something else. It had nothing to do with the flag. It had the fact that um, Trayvon Martin and other people of color were unjustly murdered. And in New York, there was a man who was on his wedding night, went out and he got killed by police officers, uh, law enforcement. Um, it has to deal with the injustices of law, even though Trayvon Martin wasn't a law enforcement situation, but there were others. I'm not going to name the list, but so, so the movement came out, Black Lives Do Matter. I've always said all lives matter. But in this situation, we have to make inference to Black Lives Matter, too, just as well as white lives. Because there was a situation where, um, I think it was in Minneapolis, there was a, a black police officer that shot, maybe he killed, I can't quite remember, somebody white. He was prosecuted and jailed. But yet the white officers that killed black people are not um, prosecuted the same way. They get off injustice. So we have to really say, I want to be a part of this, not because it's a fun thing to do, but, I, but I'm acutely aware that there are big injustices against minorities, people of color. Uh, there's injustices. I mean, even uh, last year, POTUS said to a statement of four women who did, he didn't like what they said, go back to where you came from. So that's injustice. I mean, so, and the thing about it is, oftentimes they're nasty. We're not going to get back into the, the 1800s and early 1900s. We don't have to go all the way back to slavery. That was that time and that was then. But I believe as um, uh, Queen Esther, uh, uh, her uh, uncle gave her a statement and said, you know, who's to know that God doesn't have you here for such a time as this? We're here in this time period. We haven't gone on. God has brought us here, and I think he's, he's allowed this thing to reach ahead, to manifest itself, to come forward. And we are the ones who are saying we've been empowered to do something about this now. We can no longer close our eyes. We cannot, and I, and I, and I love the fact when I talked with Steve, he, he said to me, man, in Canada, we don't have all of this stuff. You know, we go to church and it's multiracial, multicultural, multidimensional. We don't have, and when we come here in America, it's like, you have the white church, you have the black church, you have the Hispanic church, everybody's so segregated. And so I, part of that has to do with comfort. And then part of it has to do with some, some people of color that I spoke with said, listen, I work with them. I deal with them all the time. When I come to church, I want to be with my people. So it, it, we end up creating walls and barriers because of our hurt, our frustration, and our neglect to be heard. 
So when Kaepernick took a, a knee, Colin Kaepernick, it was about in police injustice. So the system of policing has been broken. That system needs to be revisited. It's more than just saying, we're going to stop funding the police, which they're saying now. We're going to cut our funding. We're going to cut our funding. No, there needs to be, not necessarily cut our funding, but there needs to be a revisiting on the, the, the techniques, the training, the systems that uh, evolve in policing. No, I'm not saying every uh, person uh, of color that gets uh, uh, is targeted or redlined or, or uh, confronted by police are, are bad people. There are bad people in every race. But I'm saying in the justice system, there needs to be equality. And when you go to the courts, when you go to the judges, there was one guy who was harassed, beaten, everything. They didn't realize he was a judge, a young black African-American judge, an attorney. So until your status is known, the first thing you're looked at is your color. And because of your color, you can be treated indifferent. You're not on an equal level. So that comes from, again, from the slave mentality that um, you're, you're not human. You're, you're in terms of on the same level as me. You're not um, equal to me. You're not, uh, you can't stand next to me. You're inferior to me. And so they have this thing, which you have seen on TV. In New York, the woman, the, the law was, have your dogs on a leash. There was a very intelligent man. He was a professional. He was a bird watcher. He was a person of color. All he did was say, ma'am, can you leash your dog? You know? And she goes on, I'm going to call, you know, what are you doing? Da, 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 da. I'm going to call the police. And she calls the police and says, there's an African-American man that's harassing me. All he did was ask her to follow the law. The law was, if you have a dog, have your dog on a leash. So they go through this thing, and she says, he's African-American. So she, she overemphasizes it. He's a person of color. What is that going to mean? The police going to hurry up and get there. It's a bad situation. She's, she's in duress. And when they find out everything, all, there was nothing done about it because she was in the wrong. She ends up losing her job. She ends up, the animal goes back because the animal was choking. But I'm just saying, so, so now white America has stepped into this mindset that I'm privileged. And so they could say things. And the first thing, I mean, I remember growing up, there was the woman who, it came out, she killed her kids. But her thing was, I was carjacked by an African-American man. I couldn't see his face, but he had a hood. So they were riding around through communities looking for somebody to profile because she said this. Eventually it came out that she drove her car into the lake and killed her kids. They all drowned. But that's the privilege. All you do is say is a black person, African-American, and the radar goes up. That's injustice. That's the disparity of treatment, and that's where the, the, the policing, the, the penal system, the justice system have to re, reorganize, retweet. They have to restructure. They have to get that system that's broken fixed. What can we do as white followers of Jesus? Uh, what 
what would you like to see us do? Well, well one thing, and I'll share, share this from an experience. A few years ago, I went to a Promise Keepers event. Many people heard of them. At that event, there was a lot of reconciling going on, a lot of repentance uh, for the sins of their forefathers. They had the Native American come up and they repented for the their forefathers who stole their land and and enslaved them and 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 put them all took the country from them and put them all in little plantations or or you know whatever you want to call it. Uh, they came up and they did their whole reconciling thing with them. Then they had the African Americans come up and they repented for the sins of their forefathers that they took us, a people who were a proud people, a people that. Uh, were in a land uh, uh, in Africa that was a blessed land, kings, queens, princes, whatever, took us, brought us here against our will, enslaved us, made us subservient to them. And so they were reconciling, repenting, and all that. After that, they said, you know, get your neighbor by the hand and pray together. So I was with a guy, um, pretty big guy. Uh, I think his hair was like kind of reddish, had overalls on. I didn't, I didn't want to uh, stereotype him, but we were there and we grabbed hands and we went to praying. As we're praying, he asked me, "Was I saved?" And I said, "Yes, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm filled with the Spirit of Holy, Holy Spirit." And yeah, I said, "We're at a conference of pastors and leaders. Why would I come here and I'm not saved?" And then he goes on to explain to me what salvation is. And I'm like, wait a minute. I told you I'm saved. I, is my salvation different from yours because I'm oh, a different boy. color than you are? So he explained salvation to me in the prayer. He asking God to give me a good, clear understanding of what being saved is, what salvation is. And you know what? I did everything to not retaliate because we were there reconciling. So I prayed. I said, Lord, please let him know what the understanding of salvation is. And then I just left. I couldn't say anything else because I was up like my temperature was like, I don't believe this guy did something like that at a pastor's conference, a leadership conference. Here we are trying to reconcile. And then he says, my salvation is different than his. So he's praying that I get an understanding of what really salvation is about. That's the thing where we've been prejudged. And so my thing is, we've got to say, listen, we're all on a level playing field. And it's, it has to be more than us having lip service of saying, we're going to repent for our sins of our forefathers. We want to reconcile the races. We want to do what our forefathers. It has to be more than just what we say. There has to be action that lines up, but not just in the churches or in a, in, in a Christian movement, a Christian circle. It has to be throughout the country in every aspect where um, we're, we're submitted to a white leadership. So there's government, that's church, that's business, industry, wherever. They have to come to understand. They, they have on their applications, we do not discriminate, you know, but yet they discriminate yeah. in housing, in jobs, and promotions, when I say discriminate, it's not just blacks. Whites are discriminated too. Females, 
Black females are discriminated. When they show the different hierarchies and they can't say it's a man's world and white men, because what I've learned to do, uh, I, I've learned to try to, my best to teach my children to be just with everybody. Now, my daughter, who's a singer, she's a Berkeley graduated. She was, she was at an event and uh, it was like um, one of these singing things. And she sang a Michael Jackson song way back then. And I mean, literally, she killed it. All the judges were like up and clapping. And they were like, oh. And the guy came in, came in. He almost didn't get in because he was late because he was in the park drinking. He comes in. He sings a song. It was okay. But because he was white, he was male, and it's based upon the, not the judges vote, but the people, there were more whites in the audience. They gave him the applause. He ended up winning. It, it's, it was her first time, per se, at failure, a disappointment, and I had to let her know. Several of the judges came to her and after and told her, you did Berkeley justice. You should have won that. You were much better than him, but it wasn't the judges. It was on the people. So again, it's the people that have to come together to deal with the issues of discrimination, uh, to deal with this issue of racism, to deal with the issue of I'm privileged and you're not. And then as parents and grandparents, we have to not per perpetuate that in the next generation. My little grandson now, he's three. He loves going to school. He loves playing with his white friends. That's great. One of my best friends growing up was a white guy. I talked about it in my message Sunday. His name was Rory. Um, he had a sister named Linda. And I remember, I was a little chubby back then. He used to eat Slim Jims, and you always sharing with me. It was in first grade, so that's probably why I love Slim Jims. But it wasn't color. We were friends. And so the Bible says, in order to have friends, one must first show himself friendly. In order for us to be able to have this dialogue where we, we have to look at each other as equal and not I'm superior to you. This is where the Black Lives Matter movement has always been one of the challenges. We've always been viewed as inferior. And I think on a opinion, of my opinion, one of the problems that we're having with POTUS now is that on an intellectual level, he could never stand up to the previous president, and it bothers him. So he, he's trying to destroy everything that he left. Now, I'm not saying everything he did was good, but dealing with the COVID, one of the things that the previous administration had in place was something that would be able to detect and stay in front of this. What did our previous administration do? He disbanded it, broke it up. And then he wanted to blame the World Health Organization. He wanted to blame this one. He wanted to blame this one. And he had two months before it really affected America, two months to deal with it. But it was the Democrats. It was fake news, all of that stuff, until the numbers. I mean, to be so low, to tell people, oh, can't, can't they take some bleach or some type of... Uh, cleanser and, you know, like get it inside of them some kind of way. And then it'll get rid. And I told him, yes, it'll get rid of the virus. And it'll also get rid of you.
I mean, so the mentality that we have to deal with and the fact of what he has pushed, I said to them, you cannot be godly going in front of a church, holding a Bible up, taking a picture up to say, I'm a man of God, when you don't even go into the church. It's such a hypocrisy to win a evangelical base to say, see, I have my Bible. And then he supposedly have wise counsel with those who are godly. Somewhere or another, somebody should have talked to him about the injustices. And so, again, he's been privileged because that's how he grew up. Even when he was running for office, some of the things he said should have sent some red flags up that is this the type of character that we want in the White House? But it didn't because people were looking at their personal benefit. And I'm not saying Hillary, it it really, it was, you try to pick the lesser of two evils and try to deal with it. But I've come to the conclusion, I believe he was God's choice, allowing that to happen because what has happened in our country today has been exposed because of his character. This is what I believe. Yeah, I believe that too. I agree. Uh, so, so let me ask you this question, Gene. How do we keep the conversation going? You said something a while back that, that I want to touch on again, because you, you said, hey, I believe all lives matter. And I think that when you say that, there's something very different underneath that than when a privileged, you know, upper middle class white person, uh, that's their first response to any conversation on, on race yeah. or on Black Lives Matter. They say, well, all lives matter. And it's like they're trying to change the channel. Like, we don't want to talk about this anymore. So it's, right. it's their way of changing the subject. And so my question for you is, because I absolutely believe we are in a very specific moment in history that the Lord has ordained for us to right. be having this conversation. And we need to be right. having this conversation from the pulpit. We need to be having this conversation uh, from Congress. We need to be having this conversation in our backyard over coffee or beers. We must be having the conversation. We cannot change the channel. We cannot change the subject. So my question to you is, when we come up against what is ultimately indifference, I don't, I don't believe that most of the people who say, and I, I have good friends who would say that very thing, you know, well, all lives matter. And I don't think that they're trying to be hateful. I don't think that they're intentionally trying to be racist. But they are not, I'm just going to say it, they are not relentlessly pursuing justice when they say that. Uh, and I believe that 100%. And so my question to you, and you can hear me, I'm getting riled up right now because it just it yeah. ticks me off, man. And so yeah. I want to know, how do I, <laughs> you told a story a few minutes ago where you prayed a quick prayer and they got the heck out of there. But how do I engage in a way that is compassionate, even on, on those who would respond that way, but furthers the conversation and doesn't allow them to change the channel? I believe it's one word. But, and I don't mean the but, but, but I mean the, the, con, the conjunction word, but I am aware of the injustices that happen to black lives in particular. So I'm there. All lives matter. Asian lives matter. Mexican lives matter. When they have separated families because 
say, you know, if you hold your hand too tight, you can't lose anything, but you can't get anything either because your hand is also tight. Building a wall to keep everybody out means not only are we keeping outsiders from coming in, we're keeping insiders from getting out. And so I remember reading, um, what's his name? Saddlebrook, um, pastor. Rick I, Warren. I got his book. Huh? Rick Warren. Rick Warren, his book. In a statement that I've all often shared at the church and in some of my chaplaincy work, he says this, God wants us to be insulated, not isolated. And that's where we as a people have to get, God want, he, he wants to insulate us. When you look at the people who Christ was attracted to, they were people outside of the gate. They were lepers. They were the people who were downtrodden. They were the publicans who, listen, look at him eating with the public. Everybody that would have their nose, society would turn their nose up or isolate them or, 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 or reject them. Those are the ones that Christ was attracted to, to say, listen, I cannot isolate myself. If I isolate myself, who am I going to influence? I've got to insulate myself. In other words, know who I am, understand who I am, understand my assignment. And from the insulation from within me, take and pour out so that I'm a blessing. Remember you said blessed are, it's, it's, it's a greater blessing for me to give than to receive. Often people think, well, I give here, I give here. But if you're not sowing, even in, in the tithing method, if it's not out of genuine love, if it's not, if you're giving, if you're sowing, and people can only sow what they have. So if there's still envy in you, if there's still jealousy in you, if there's still entitlement in you, if there's still hatred in you, just a little bit, you know, if it's still, that's all that you can sow. So what you do is you continue to breed, because remember, seed bears of its own kind. And if that's in me, the only seed I'm producing is going to be seed like me. So what has to happen is we have to, as Jesus said when he spoke to Nicodemus, I'm not talking about going back into your mother's womb again. I'm talking about now being baptized, being made anew in the Holy Spirit, having a new, having a DNA change. True believers must realize more than the letters uh, WJD, but what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond to this? What is my role in this? How can I help fix the system? How can I be a voice? And how can I be the one that all my friends, oh, no, all lies, man. No, yeah, they do. but. This particular group, Mexicans are, are, shouldn't be treated like that. Immigrants shouldn't be treated like that. Women shouldn't be treated like that. So there should be a but, but that but is not a one statement, but black lives, is that but should be black lives, Mexican lives, women's lives, women's rights. That, that should be a vine that extends into all facets of people that have been affected by the elite class or the privileged class that steps on everybody else. It seems to me that's 
that's what make that's people don't understand that racism we could use other words too but let, if they don't personally hate somebody of another color they don't we don't think we're racist or we're like well blacks are racist too it's i i think it's not that simple i think it's prejudice is hating someone different than you but when you add power to that that's when it becomes racism right so so it's that um it's it's not only um stereotyping the other but also the disparity you were talking about and that's that's where it's like i where i actually can be complicit in a system without personally hating any you know i don't know a single black person that i hate well that's fine but but as lo- but if i'm okay with the disparity and if i'm if i'm complicit in it by simply enjoying it out of ignorance i i, I think we can't plead ignorance anymore and that's one of the most yeah. important parts about this moment is suddenly we don't get to plead ignorance and I think it's a good time to remember that in Matthew 25, at the final judgment, mm-hmm. it's all every, the criteria for judgment at the sheep and goats judgment is all sins of omission concerning the marginalized. Every one of them. And it wasn't even you oppress the marginalized. It's like you just didn't help them. You didn't do anything. You didn't say anything. It's like, oh, I never knew. And this is a magnificent you do so no moment, right? And, and mm-hmm. so um, I think I think that's an important thing to come out of this so that uh, people like me don't squirm out of the crosshairs too easily because we could write that list. You, you virtually um, paraphrased it and transposed it for our day. Um, I was a woman and you oppressed me. I was of an African American, and you excluded me. I was a, I was a, an immigrant on the southern border, and you caged me. I was, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, I didn't do that. It's like, actually, when you didn't help me, when you didn't speak up, when you didn't mm-hmm. participate, you, yeah. you actually became a goat. So I, yeah. I, just in this conversation, I'm seeing like, I don't, I don't get to plead ignorance anymore. This is out front yeah. and center. Right. And the other thing is, too, and what you were saying is with the police officers, what happened was, okay, there was action, there was activity, but I think it was, when you talked about the word power, he had the power to get up, but he chose to stay on his neck. I think it, it came to a point, and they, and they documented almost three minutes after the man was non responsive, he was still on the neck, had his hand in his pocket, is like, I got the power. I could do what I want to do. And he stayed there. So I think that was part, that was a part that was what really hurt people. And then the fact that the other ones were Im- implicit in his action. No one stopped him. No one said, okay, hey, that's enough. I know the other guy, he was new to the force. He was being trained, but you're implicit. So, so now they're saying all of them need to be charged. Even though the the brunt of the the injury was from the one person, so again, the uh, the police officer, the captain, uh, the department captain said to them, you know, I take responsibility, but we don't train like that. So 
there needs to be oversight. The sad thing about it with the oversight is, and, and I'm going to be very upfront, personal about it, but here's a man who had 17, um, I won't say infractions, but 17 charges um, that were IAs through internal affairs, whatever, offense that were brought against him. If that was a person of color, I'm just going to be very honest with you, I think after two or three, he would have been fired. How do you get somebody to have 17, I mean, horrendous uh, accusations, charges against you? It wasn't the first time he did something like that and still be on the force. So the, the, the captain said, I take fault for that. The, the, the mayor said, I take fault for that. So, But the sad thing about it is people take fault after the effect. But I thought this morning about today's event coming on, and, and it just hit me while I was uh, trying to groom myself. Wow, it always seems to take the death of someone in order to engage a movement. And I thought about how Christ had to die. He said, I have to die. And if I die, if I don't die, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, will not come. So I have to, and after his death brought the, 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 the apostolic movement that changed the world. And so what's happening is there were other deaths before Christ, but his death was one of significance that brought about a radical change to the Christendom or church world that everybody was intimidated because wherever they went now, because they were empowered, signs and wonders, miracles happened. And so I believe through this death, it's going to be a, the catalyst for another movement. It has to just be, can't, it just can't be Black Lives Matter. It has to be a movement that's about change, a movement that's going to get people to think differently and to act differently. It has to be a movement that said this movement is going to fix broken structures, fix broken systems, fix what has been disjointed and out of place for so long that it became the norm. Now is the time, and I believe, through, as you said, Christ is orchestrating this. I believe he's the chief orchestrator behind this that says, okay, now my people, I've given you a forum. Now it's time for you to stand up. And I think this is the opportunity that we have for every believer, Christian believer, ecclesia, to say, God, give us the power, give us the strength. And Paul said on one occasion, if I die, I'm the Lord. If I live, I'm the Lord. But if I die, I'm still the Lord. It doesn't matter if I live or die, I'm still the Lord's. So I'm willing, this is important enough that I'm willing to be ostracized and may even cost my life like the man, the 75-year-old man the other day who was pushed down and then cost his life, but he got in, in harm's way and now he was you know, in critical condition, but he took a stand. It's going to take people to take a stand to say, I may get hurt, I may have some wounds, you know, Paul was in a ship. The ship got destroyed in a Rocky Ladon storm. We're in a storm. But he said he got a word from the Lord. We need to have our prophets hearing the, the voice of God. What is God saying in this culture, in this day and time? He said, the word of the Lord came to me and said, we're going to face shipwreck. It's going to be total chaos, total destruction. But if you can hold on to a piece of the ship, that you will survive. We've got to hold on, with, even if it's broken pieces, 
We've got to hold on to our integrity and say, listen, I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to be a peacekeeper. It may not be popular, but if I hold on, I know change is going to come. Hmm. So what's our platform, Gene? You said a moment ago, God's given us a platform. Uh, what is that platform? Does that mean getting, uh, you know, dad last week was down there marching with, with the, the protesters. Uh, does that mean getting on social media and lighting your hair on fire? What is it? I believe, hair. I, I believe the platform <laughs> is not what, or whatever you have. I, I believe our platform <laughs> is bigger than one or two people. I believe that the platform has to begin in our churches. Hmm. And I believe that God has given to the earth realm prophetic voices that have governmental mandates, that we uh, step outside of the four walls of our church and allow God to use us to get into a place where we can influence governmental decisions. It doesn't have to be about getting paid or not paid. I'm hearing... Remember, Daniel, what he did, he was initially uh, brought in as a slave. He was emasculated, became a eunuch, committed himself to the Lord. But it wasn't until he did the Lord's work that he was elevated to a position of prince in Babylon. So we have to say, you know what? I might be emasculated. I might be talked about. I might lose some friends. But I have to stand on the truth, and this is what God is saying. It begins in our churches, and I think as we come together in our churches, we can begin to use the media platform that will open up dialogue with people. Uh, this is not about seeing who's, who has the greatest church, who has the greatest influence, who is, has the highest IQ. Listen, let's get in touch with God so that we can hear from God, so that we can share with our governmental leaders strategies that re replicate or represent the rhythm of the kingdom. I believe Impact Nations, not only is it global, I think my prayer is that Impact Nations would impact millions and millions of people because, uh, not because Steve is a great man, but because the vision he has was a God vision. He's following that vision. Um, I have people in my church that sow into impact nations, not just because I was there, but because they believe in what they're doing. So you have to have people believing in what they're doing. And as I said before, it revolutionized my whole idea about ministry because in my culture, we get, you know, you get really, like you said, you were in Africa and they felt you weren't saying anything if you weren't jumping and hollering and screaming. We get very active and energetic and all that. And I saw just a calmness, you know, if I were to say this, and I don't mean to, to take away from, but there was such a swag in Steve's presentation, how he presented the gospel. And I was like, I was like a sponge. I was, man, I never heard the gospel presented in such a way that I realize now it's not about me being so physical, me being so loud me speaking in tongues over people. Christ never spoke in tongues over anybody he laid hands on and healed. There were some he didn't even lay hands on. I began to see it, and I began to share with our, work, with our church, it's the word of God alone that does the work. 
And we have to get back to those principles. It's the word of God that's going to bring change. All I want to do is be the instrument, one of the instruments that he uses that have a voice that will, uh, you know, have a platform that I can share what Christ is, is saying to me. So it's all of our, all of our responsibility. What exactly, I, I don't know. You know. I'm praying into that. God, we're, what is it? What is the strategy that we need? I know it can begin with being a peacemaker. Man, what's the role of politics in this? It, you know, Jesus famously did not. You know, he came. They they assumed he was coming as the big overthrower to to kick the Romans out of there, uh, and instead came uh, as a servant to lay down his life and to to engage with the marginalized, those who who are outside of uh, influential society, if you will. Is there a role in politics here? What's what is our role? You know, I often hear uh, pastors will begin to speak out against injustice, but they they often uh, will preface their statement by saying, you know, this isn't a political statement, or you know, we don't want to get into politics here. But and then they'll they'll make that statement, and I sometimes I feel like that almost softens the message. I'm not sure what politics has to be a part of something, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, politics. Ha, it has its place. You don't. It doesn't make you a politician because you address the political injustices. Uh, Jesus, he wasn't a politician, yet he he dealt with some of the political dramas of his day, even to the point where he he's he told him, "Hey, there, go over here, get the fish. In the fish, there's a coin. You go pay your taxes." It was taxes that got he, uh, Joseph and Mary to relocate. Amen to Bethlehem because of taxes. So we are bound by government. And he even said on one occasion, you render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God's was, was God, what belongs to the Lord. So there is a, there is a place for, for um, uh, to be a pol- political or have somewhat of a political uh, influence, but, and yet remain a child of God. But it seems like people that have become political that were in the church have put the church part on the back and become more political. So they've been, been their ideologies to become more political than standing. So the influence was more important to them politically than it was. I'm God's voice to influence the politicians. So yeah, we have to be political. Yeah, because there's there's a difference between uh, being a prophetic voice speaking to the political powers, speaking truth, uh, speaking light into that darkness, versus trying to uh, infiltrate the darkness, shall we say, uh, trying to ultimately gain power for the sake of powers, but you know, using yeah. the message of Christ to get there. That, that's yeah, what got us in this power. mess, right? We don't want to gain yes. a power, but in John is very clear when he talks about John one, he said that that he talks about we're the light, Christ the light, and he says the darkness does not comprehend or overtake it. So we're and I always share with our people wherever we go, we can step to a dark place and light should come, because it's the light of Christ that is illuminated through us. So we can step into a political arena, be the prophetic voice. 
Know your place, because you, you can't talk about, I got a word from the Lord, and that's not your assignment. Know your assignment, know your place. And if God said, I called you as a, as a voice, as a prophet, as an apostle, to be a, a apostle to the government, a, a prophetic voice to the government. That's what Daniel was. That's what so many of the prophets were. Uh, they were like, they were very, worked very close to the king. They wouldn't go to war. They wouldn't go to battle. They wouldn't make a move until, let me hear what the prophet is saying. And if he says, don't go, we're not going. And there was one, I, I, I'm, I can't remember, I'm, uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm talking, I'm, it's going through my head, but there was one prophet, I think it was Elijah, was sent for, and the king, the, the question was, is there a prophet? And the, all the prophets were saying, yes, king, go, go to battle, go to battle. It's going to, I don't know if it, was, if it was a Hezekiah or one of those, um, go, to, go to battle, go to battle, you're going to win, you're going to win. And they said, there is a prophet, Elijah, send for him. He went and sent for him. And, he said, ah, I don't like him. He never says anything good. So the prophets met him first and says, listen, all of us have given a, a favorable word. So we want you to give him a favorable word. He goes for the, for the king. And the king says, okay, well, yes, go, go break king. Be. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Something is not right. You've never said anything good to me. So then he says, just tell me what God said. And he tells him, no, you're going you're gonna to lose your life. Son's gonna lose it. It's not gonna work out good for you. See, I told you it's not good. Put him in jail. So we have to not be afraid of going, you know. And I don't just use Martin Luther King is the great one in the black community, but I'm sure there were. Remember the um, the, the peacemakers that went south back in the uh, yeah the, the Freedom 50s? Riders. Freedom Riders, right? Yeah, they weren't all black. They, some of them were white, and they lost their lives. And so when it comes to dealing with injustice, not everybody wants to hear it. It may cost you your life. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your security. It may cost you your status. But I'd rather do whatever God has assigned for me to do, as you talked about in Revelation, know that there's a crown. I'm only a... I'm only a sojourner. This is not my home. I'm only on a temporary assignment. I am spirit, house, and flesh. This is not, I can't become so attached to this world and the things of this world, because John said, if you love the world and the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. I can't become so attached that I miss on what God has released for me for this world. So for me, if I die, it's okay. Because I'm only going to go see the Lord sooner. I'm going to get my crown sooner. So we have to take the position, you know, that life is not uh, of importance that I will refuse to do the assignment that God has for me. I'll do it. If I'm in prison, so be it. Uh, Steve, I applaud you. You walk with them. But uh, I know I'm, I'm talking, I'm rambling, but I want to leave this thought, and then I'm going to let you guys talk. There was a, a couple that were coming to our church. As Steve said, you know, it's a black church. <laughs> they were coming, and I used to deliver mail. I was her mailman. She loved me. She loved me. Her husband loved me. They were having some issues, but I would always pray with them. I would talk with them. They were having issues with their daughter. We were there. We invited them to church. They started coming. One week came. They loved it. Two weeks came. Three weeks came. A couple of months, they were attending. 
in February, we had a um, we have our kids do um, in recognition of uh, Black History Month do events. They were doing some things, and I noticed how he felt. She loved it, but he felt uncomfortable. Later on, she said to me, "Well, my husband said to me, now he he's kind of knows what it feels like to be a minority. He was in a black church. It was only one or one or two other white families there." He felt, now I, I know what it feels like to be a minority. Eh, that's a very, very superficial feel because you're in a black church and they talk about black history. Month. I said, it's sad we only recognize black history month one month out of the year. But he was there for that and it made him uncomfortable when you talked about those who were lynched, those who didn't have rights. They weren't civil rights back then. Those who were creators and inventors and had their ideas stolen. Those things, and so it made him feel uncomfortable being a white person. And so after that, they stopped coming. So when I talked to her, she said, oh, I don't want you to think it was just because of that. I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, we're still there. Anytime you want to come, you can come. But that's something when it's in a, when it's put in usually, and I hate to, I hate to use the term white person, but when it's put in a non-white's face like that, they have a hard time dealing with the issue because they can't relate. They only can relate on it. I thought about Steve, he marched. He said, I did what they did. I put my hands up, I chanted, I can't breathe, I did all that. But that's the extent of it. He never can get behind that to really yes. know what it feels like. And I applaud him for doing that. It's a start, but it really takes some work to get behind why I raised my hands. Why are they raising their hands? Why did Colin Kaepernick take a knee? Why did, why did uh, the, back in the 60s, when those sprinters won the race, they put their fist up uh, in pride of, of black power and they were banished and didn't get their awards for winning first place and second place? These things have, uh, didn't just pop up. It's been going on for a long time. I remember when I was growing up in the 60s when, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. I remember all of that. Now, Medgar Evers was before me. He was in the 50s. But in the 60s, I remember watching the police march down the street, shooting tear gas. And I'm in the house. We're all in the house crying, trying to figure out how are we crying. We're in the house. That stuff gets airborne. It gets in there. But I remember seeing the looters run down the street. And what I'm confronted with today surpasses what I've witnessed as a child. So in 50 years, have we grown? No, it's still there. So I believe God has this thing being exposed like a bad pimple <laughs> for a time like this so we can finally say, you know what? Enough is enough. What do we need to do that we can deal with this and so that people can be recognized for being who they are and what they bring to the table and not the color of their skin or not because uh, of sexism, they're female or they're lower than us. Um, I know some female, personally, weightlifters that will out, out bench press me. So, I mean, they're strong. Uh, and, and, and I've, when I, my wife gave birth and some of you that had children know when you're in there with your wife, what they deal with, I could never deal with bearing child that's why that's their curse but it's something i can't do you can't deal with that pain 
until you've really been there. But it's our it's our job to continue to try to try to place ourselves there. Yes. Like we have to start somewhere. We can't just say, well, I'll never get it. So I guess there's no point in even getting into the conversation. Not only just sympathize, but empathize, but try to envision, Mm. you know, the fact that my grandparents were slaves, my, my great, my, my, my father's mother, and I'm going to do an ancestry thing, but my father's mother was part native American and part Irish. So I'm doing the history thing on that to find out because I, I remember growing up joking with my dad uh, when he had a group picture with his siblings. I said, Dad, you guys look like a tribe of Indians. The women hair is all long. Just stereotyping, being young. But, I, you know, that thing. But I wanted to find out what really what my history is about. But really, once you leave Adam and Eve, there's, to me, there's no true bloodline. They were created pure. After that, the right walk, the right alt, or whatever they call themselves, the, all of them people that are talking about make America great and we're gonna pure to get this pure bloodline. When you look now at when special answer, everybody's got some something in them. You never see a hundred percent of yeah, anybody. We're all mutts. Yeah. <laughs> all of us are in the same boat. Some are different more than others. We're yeah. all. We all have mixed bloodlines. So since we all have mixed bloodlines, we all need to try to get together. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question, Gene. Uh, speaking very practically now, what are some things that people who, you know, you said, well, I had to say white people, but hey, we're white people. What are some things that white people who are trying to place ourselves there? As you said, we can't possibly ever fully grasp it because we have, we don't have a shared experience with you and your community, but what are some things that we uh, say or do that are actually really not helpful? Like as we're trying to engage, as we're trying to further the conversation and stuff, are there things that we're saying or doing that are actually doing more harm than good or, or hurting more than blessing? I think what, what, really has to happen is it's a mindset. Remember the scripture says, let the mind of Christ dwell in you richly. You have to have, um, I think in Romans, it, it talks about a renewing of the mind. I think people's mindset have to be renewed to realize we're all God's people, all God's children. And what really needs to happen is the platform needs to get to a level where they can engage and act change. In other words, it has to get to to the government levels where policies are written and uh, and uh, agendas are are dealing with humanity change. Um, I mean, like for instance, they they said something. I think Lyndon Johnson wrote something that gave blacks a right to vote, and there was something where they were talking about that order is getting ready to end. So we need to make some more changes. I mean, why all the restrictions on black people? You know, so I believe that it has to get into Congress. It has to get into the Senate and it has to get into the white house. It has to get into the Supreme court. It has to get completely in the judicial system of America 
where true change can really begin to happen. And we have to, as, as, as black people, give people a chance to make the change and not receive it as a pseudo um, acceptance. But some people, like I said, I, I was more than honored. I mean, I was thrilled. When Steve came at my house, very low key. I don't want a hotel. You don't have to do it. Let me just, I'll just crash down here. And yeah. I mean, for me, it was like having uh, uh, T.D. Jakes in my house. I mean, I hold him in such an esteem. And, and the Bible talks about we have to esteem each other higher than ourselves. We, we continue to elevate ourselves over people rather than esteeming them higher and greater than us. And even in the, when you look at the, 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 the Ten Commandments, there's a scripture that talks about our, our brothers. Yes. Brad, were you going to say something? Oh, oh okay. I said, yeah. You're on uh, mute. You're on mute. You're yeah, on I mute. wasn't going to say anything oh. right now. Oh, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, but since you paused, I was thinking about how um, one of the things we need to well, two points quickly. One is when we're, t if, if there's a charge about like, don't be political, remember there, there's a difference between being part of a political system for the purpose of power. And then um, what the Sermon on the Mount sort of describes as public faith. So if I'm exercising public faith, not just private religion, but public faith, that will look political. And there are those among us who, who become part of the political system, but, but if they're doing it in a Christ-like way, it will be as servants of the people, not as those who are pushing for power. So that's one thing I was thinking about when Tim said mm -hmm. the word political was to define that for Christians as public faith. And the other was, um, I do hear objections sometimes about how now, how we have equal opportunity. And I don't believe that, but... Uh, it's, it's not just like, let's put Gene and I on the same starting line for a 100-yard dash. There, he has an equal opportunity. Well, hang on. What if Gene's just had to run a marathon? And that, that's not equal opportunity. And so I think we need to look at the backstory uh, and the underlying conditions that make what looks like equal opportunity actually another disparity. And, and the... And so those are just some thoughts I had as we were rolling. Yeah. And this, you know, and everybody, uh, there's a scripture that, that talks about every man, I, I think it says something like every man believes he's right in his own eyes. We've got to stop looking at everything from our eyes and see it from the other's eyes. Hmm. You know, if I was in your shoes, how would I respond? How would it be if we, the black nation, black America, became the oppressors to the white? We enslaved you all. We raped your children. We destroyed your families. We stole you from Canada or wherever, wherever. We brought you here against your will. How would you be able to respond? So you have to try to envision this from the other person's perspective. Because oftentimes people say, well, you'll never understand because you, you're never in my shoes. But if we could try to understand it, if I were in your shoes, how would I respond? Maybe we can begin to see things differently.
Well, I mean, we could go on forever. <laughs> yeah. I can't, but, but we, we should do a follow-up at some point. Yeah. Brad, let me ask you uh, quickly. Do you have hope that things are going to move forward this time beyond where they went even four years ago when this was, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement began? I don't know. <laughs> I, I would, you know, like um, some, I, I, I think that we're seeing things we haven't seen before. So that's, that's reason for hope. Mm-hmm. And even how, um, you know, my, I mentioned off the air, I think even before Jean came on, I have a, my daughter-in-law is an indigenous Canadian. And in fact, Canada has been horrendous on that community. And we, it was a genocide and we've managed to keep them under foot and they can't create a black lives matter movement of their own for indigenous people. They're too, we, we wiped out so many of them and disempowered them. So, but she's looking at this and, 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 and she was talking about, we, you know, we need to defund the police forces. I'm like, I, I don't think that's realistic, but then she, as she's describing it for me and saying, look, it, it's not about abolishing police forces. It's about reallocating funds so that we're doing more work with the social service safety net and all of that than giving it all to policing and punishment after the fact. And I'm like, yeah, but is that, who's going to really do that? And then last night, the mm-hmm. Minneapolis city council made a commitment to do that. that yes. can't be vetoed. I'm like, that is radical. So um, I don't know how that will play out. They're going to have to really pay attention to how they do it, if it will bring about any permanent change. But the fact that they would even have that vote tells me people are imagining things that I hadn't imagined. And so mm-hmm. some, the mm-hmm. spirit is giving people creative ideas about restructuring. And that's yeah. what Dean's talking about, strategy. And I think mm-hmm. there's strategies strategies in the spirit that I can't even imagine yet. So there, I've just talked myself into hope. There you go. There you, there you go. go. <laughs> I, um, uh, I put on my own personal Facebook um, this morning, something that was came across my desk and I just forwarded on. I'd encourage you guys to look at it. It's about two pages long of, of concrete results already from whatever it's been, 12 days of, of marching. And, uh, and so I'd encourage you to see that, including the, uh, the Minneapolis City Council thing, Brad. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm like you. Who knows? Yeah. How, how can any of us know? But, but I do have hope. I do have hope. Yeah. And I think it's important that we do have hope. Otherwise, we're spinning the wheels. Uh, on the merry-go-round. I think it's hope. I, I listened last night, and uh, Michael Jordan have committed $100 million Whoa. over over a 10-year period, so that's like $10 million a year, right, to programming for the inner city and all that. And yeah. it's going to take people like that, um, uh, you know, people are, of who are well-off, to say we're gonna, fund, we're not just giving you money. We're gonna fund some programs to help. Like one thing that I was very impressed about with uh, with um, Impact Nations, yeah, we brought water. They didn't have water, but also there was teaching 
on how to take impoverished women who all they knew to make money was through prostitution or have nothing, went to school to learn a craft, a trade, learn how to sew. Impact Nation said, okay, we're going to teach you that and we're going to give you sewing machines. And now they're independent, have their own businesses. That's what I'm talking about, empowering people to be able to step out of poverty. So we have hope. Hope makes us not ashamed, but our hope is that um, people will um, step up to the plate and know that it's, it's going to take a long-term commitment. Uh, it's not overnight. It's going to be a long-term commitment. When I say overnight, I don't mean like tomorrow morning. But it's going to take a long-term commitment with, with, with finances. And I think with the Minneapolis police and some of the other ones, they're defunding, but they say defunding, but they should use the word reallocating. Yeah. Reallocating funds to help uh, develop programming. And it has to be more than um, cultural sensitivity and understanding this and understand. There has to be something hands-on because when we grew up, I think the internet is great, but also most of us grew up, we had communication skills, we had interpersonal. I remember going to school, we learned penmanship, we took class on how to communicate, we took uh, classes on how to, how to cook, how to sew, uh, domestic classes, different things that will prepare us. I remember my wife, she bragged about it. And I said, well, I'm not really happy about it. But she said, well, I thank God for my mother-in-law because she taught my husband how to sew, how to cook. He washes, does laundry. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want you to always rely on that. I want you to be my wife too. But I learned how to sew. I learned how to cook. I learned how to wash dishes because my, my mother said, I want to prepare you just in case you don't get married to be single. But I became the perfect catch to a woman who didn't have to do all of that because I felt like she worked, I worked. She, she worked hard, I worked hard. I shouldn't come home and sit around and wait for her to cook. Sometimes she'd come home and I have dinner cooked for her. So I believe there has to be this, this communal thing in, in the races that says, listen, not only am I lifting my hands up, but I'm locking arms with you. Let you know we're in this together. It doesn't matter that our, our skin color is not the same. Our ideology is that we want to see justice prevail and justice treated uh, fairly across the board for all humanity. Amen. Amen. Thanks for moderating this, Tim. Well, my pleasure. It's, uh, as I say, we, there's, there is so much here, uh, and maybe we could regather uh, in a few weeks and, and see what, you yeah. know, that Minneapolis thing just happened last night. Who knows what oh. other dominoes are going to fall as a result. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, we continue to pray and call down the reality of heaven into the here and now, and we continue to speak up for justice. Amen. And, and Amen. step outside of our own boundaries to yeah. go and begin to understand and, and as you said, Gene, so beautifully, see from yeah. the eyes of those who are outside of our own world to begin to understand yeah. what life is like. Yeah. And since we've been on, I just got an a email. Somebody was giving my name. They want me to participate June 20th for a rally and want me to be one of the speakers. So oh, good. good. this is, um, you know, so my thing is, 
I don't look at, hey, great, an opportunity, I can get my voice up. My thing, as soon as I read it, I said, okay, God, I got to go into prayer because I want to hear from you uh, what, I, what I need to say to the people because mm-hmm. it's, it's something that, um, you know, we may, we may or may not see in, in complete fruition in our lifetime. You know, I'm in my 60s. Tim, you're probably in your 40s, 30s. Uh, but anyways, we want to at least get the, the catalyst, get it rolling, so that there's something that the, our, our kids, our grandkids can grab onto and say, let's keep this thing going. You know, we can't go back backwards. Let's, let's just keep yep. moving forward. Yep. Amen. Amen. Very good. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, we'll do this again soon. Um, for those who are listening, if you're not already a subscriber to the Impact Nations podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe. Uh, we've got several years of teaching in there, uh, and there are loads of resources. We've got lots of chats with the famous Brad, uh, and uh, it's a fabulous resource. So if you head to impactnations.com slash podcast, you can learn all about that. Uh, real quick, just a plug for our feeding programs right now. I mentioned... Uh, in an email just a few days ago, we have now surpassed 650,000 meals that have been supplied to the poor in seven different nations since uh, like the last week of March uh, in response directly to uh, the coronavirus lockdowns that have just immediately crippled the poor uh, financially. And they faced a food crisis uh, for the last 10 weeks and the impact nations family has been just amazing in their response to that. So if you'd like to learn more about that, you can head to impactnationscom slash feeding. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, and we uh, hope to talk to you again soon.